Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I always look forward to my annual pilgrimage to the annual international conference of the Institute for Functional Medicine. I enjoy all the words of wisdom and cutting-edge research that helps me do better care for my patients and also keep you appraised of the latest in scientific research as it relates to health and functional medicine. I look forward to these pilgrimages, as I said. Unfortunately, for the last three years, these pilgrimages have basically consisted of walking from my bedroom to my office for a prolonged marathon weekend Zoom, which is always fun after a fairly frequent number of Zooms during the week, but it's worth it. At least I hope you'll think so. We'll start off talking about mast cells and allergies and histamine, which may turn out to be a bigger factor in health and disease, I think, than most of us realize. Certainly, far more than the allergists realize. But let's get started on that. What kind of diseases are we talking about anyway? Well, we all know about hay fever, allergies, that runny nose we get every spring when the lovely yellow trees are in bloom, asthma, eczema, food allergies, some of which can be very serious, Then there's a cancer-like disorder called mastocytosis, and then multiple chemical sensitivity syndrome. There's also non-IgE food allergy for my sins. I have that uh, in reaction to watermelon, which is one of my favorite fruits, so I'm totally like tantalus every summer at the salad bar, but uh, such is life. But there's also chronic spontaneous urticaria, that is to say chronic hives, something my mother suffered from. There's atopic dermatitis, something called mast cell activation syndrome, which is probably much more common. And statistically, those one of you out there listening to this will probably recognize that they have this themselves. There's also non-IgE food allergy, usually mediated by IgG, and I like to call that food sensitivity because I don't want to upset my allergy uh, colleagues. Then there's a lot of mimics. Fainting, a vasovagal attack, for example, or a pharmaceutical reaction like a rash that you get from a antibiotic. Amoxicillin is notorious for causing a rash, but unless it causes hives, we really don't need to worry course, we have so many other options. We tend to take a uh, better safe than sorry approach. But really, if you develop a rash that lasts for several days after taking amoxicillin, the chances that you'll ever have anaphylaxis are pretty slim. There are all, there's also a condition called hereditary and acquired angioedema. And this is where people get swelling of their mouth and their tongue. There's histamine poisoning from fish called scromboid uh, poisoning, and this is where bacteria in the fish actually 
change the fish protein, histidine, into histamine, and people get what looks for all the life of them like an allergic reaction to food. There's also a toxin called ciguatera that is found in uh, certain algae, and that's one of the red tide algaes will produce this toxin, and it can make surfers or other people who are diving very sick. And a, um, a syndrome called carcinoid syndrome, which is actually caused by high levels of serotonin release, but looks very, very much like a mast cell disease. So as you can see, there's a lot of diagnosis that needs to go on and a lot of cross-diagnosis where it could be one thing, but it actually turns out to be something else. So before we talk about mast cells, we have to make a slight digression and talk about Dr. Paul Ehrlich. Back in the Wild West days of medicine in Europe in the 19th century, a doctor can make all sorts of amazing discoveries. The field was wide open, and Dr. Ehrlich certainly took advantage of that. He is known for his expertise in staining, and he showed how to stain blood cells and bacteria. In fact, he was the first uh, doctor to be able to stain the tuberculosis bacillus. Ehrlich is most famous for having found the first effective therapy for syphilis. For this, he was awarded a Nobel Prize. So great was the relief of the peoples of Europe that just about every city had a street named after him. Monaco also honored him with a postage stamp. And of course, for our purposes, Ehrlich was first to describe the mast cell. Uh, mast cells are very, very dark cells. They're really quite pretty, actually. If you use Ehrlich's toluene blue, uh, what you find is a big amoeba-looking blob with a nice red nucleus and all kinds of beautiful cobalt blue and pale lavender uh, circles. And what we now know is that the cobalt blue circles are actually or maybe they're more of an ultramarine, actually. Anyway, bluish-purple. These are full of a whole bunch of bioactive materials, histamine in particular, but also leukotrienes, like slow-reactive substance of uh, anaphylaxis, and bradykinin, which causes pain and itching. So each mast cell has about a 1,000 granules. And by the way... It uh, was misnamed. It was called a mast cell from the Greek word for breast because it looked uh, biologically a little bit like a milk lobule in the human or mammalian breast, I should say. It's an extremely pretty cell, but it also is extremely important to the immune system. The mast cells actually tend to populate the subcutaneous and subepithelial layers, also the interstitial tissues. In other words, it's not a blood vessel, it's not an organ, it's the space between. And they wander around in this space rather like, like a patrolman uh, watching for levels of IgE 
and sending little pseudopodia into the blood vessels to measure IgE in the serum because that tells it a little bit about how active it should be. Now, IgE is the antibody that causes anaphylaxis and allergy, and it increases when a person is under stress. Stress absolutely aggravates allergy symptoms, and in fact, in many autoimmune conditions, it also is a high aggravant, being responsible for flare-ups. It also crosses the placenta, this IgE, and it's been shown that fetal mast cells will respond to a mother's IgE, so increased uh, atopy, in other words, increased tendency to have allergies when the baby is finally born, but also increased anxiety uh, comes along with having an allergic mom, which I found fascinating. It's as if the psychological threshold for worrying, the vigilance, if you will, of the individual is running in parallel with the vigilance of this border patrol cell, the mast cell. Now, it also, as I said, contains lots of other interesting compounds in its granules. Platelet activating factor is one of them. That's a factor that causes platelets to clump. And in fact, there is a connection between stress and slightly increased tendency for uh, thrombophlebitis. Uh, it also contains tumor necrosis factor. In fact, it's the only cell that walks around with tumor necrosis factor. This is, as you might expect, a pro-inflammatory uh, mediator, so named tumor necrosis factor because it was first discovered in high abundance in the areas around cancers. And definitely when purified and put in cells uh, with cancer tissue cultures was lethal. However, it is carried inside these mast cells who are therefore a huge part of our initial vigilance against cancer. It has receptors on its surface for cortisol release hormone. Uh, cortisol releasing hormone comes from the hypothalamus and travels to the pituitary gland where it causes the release of adrenal cortical stimulating hormone, which then leads to the cortisol rising in the bloodstream. It also has receptor for interleukin 1b, which is released by the other cells when they encounter something that is an invader. And a new fun fact is that glyphosate and atrazine, which are two commonly used pesticides, uh, well, in case of glyphosate, a herbicide, these are also mast cell stimulants. So the whole ball gets rolling at a little bit lower threshold if you're exposed to these. It also has toll-like receptors, which are receptors for bacterial lipopolysaccharides. And the granules contain interleukin-31. This is what causes the potent itching of psoriasis. Until I attended this lecture, I always thought mast cells were just bags of histamine walking around, with receptors for IgE on their surface, and that uh, when the IgE attached to them, it faced outward looking for things that it was reactive to, like any good antibody. And after 
finding it triggered the mast cell to release these granules. But wait, it turns out there's a whole lot more going on. The mast cell doesn't just release these granules and reset. In fact, the stimulation sets a chain of reactions, including the production in the nucleus of the RNA to make interleukin-1b, one of the things that starts the degranulation. So now we have a positive feedback loop, mast cells releasing compounds that trigger more mast cells to start making the compound that triggers mast cells. Uh, It also produces VEGF, which is a vascular epithelial growth factor, Uh, bradykinin, which is a pain compound. It releases, as I said, more, it starts making tumor necrosis factor, and also a host of interleukins, numbers 1 beta, 5, 6, 17, 31, that's the itch one, and that loops over and over again. Now, I had mentioned that there are receptors for cortisol-releasing hormone, and this is important because stress can prime the mast cell to be reactive. And we've already talked about how that actually can cross the placenta in the form of IgE. So the mother and the fetus are very interlinked when it comes to adverse prenatal experiences having a long-term effect on the fetus. In fact, one study that was cited at this article said that dust mite allergy and cockroach allergy were both highly correlated with the mothers having adverse experiences during pregnancy. And I think they controlled for economic issues there, but I haven't read the original article. It's sort of an obvious thing that you would have to do for it to mean anything at all. Given what they produce when activated and the fact that they contain on their surface a receptor that will read the COVID spike protein, it's very possible that the level of innate activation in mastocytes in the individual may have played a factor in who got severe cytokine storm when they were infected with COVID. So those granules that Paul Ehrlich first described are really only half the story, the immediate half that happens within five to 30 minutes. But there's an other slower half that begins at about 20 hours, with the slow release, not the degranulation, but the slow uh, excretion of all of these highly active compounds, some of which can be sensed on the surface of the mast cell itself and keep the whole thing running. Now, it's sad but true that the diagnosis of overactive mast cells gets missed all the time. And part of the reason for that is What doctors know about mast cell disease is largely allergy, asthma, and an entity called mastocytosis. The World Health Diagnostic Criteria for Systemic Mastocytosis says that you have to have dense infiltrates, collections, if you will, of mast cells on your bone marrow biopsy. In other words, too many mast cells are being produced. There are some other criteria, not so important, spindle-shaped cells, a mutation in something called codon 816, flow cytometry showing expression of 
CD 117, CD 2, and CD 25 by the bone marrow population. And all of these are related to genetic changes in the mast cells. So we're looking at an abnormal clone, not so abnormal that it's going to kill you, but it can certainly make you miserable. The other important criteria is a serum tryptase greater than 20. But there's a whole large cohort of people who have mast cell activation, overactivation, and who have high levels of these compounds floating around in their system, not high enough, unfortunately, to cross the criteria uh, to reach the attention of a standard-trained physician, but real enough to the patient. And the symptoms of this mast cell activation can be purely gastrointestinal, purely psychological, or purely dermatological, or some combination of the above. The skin symptoms in particular are important to consider. Anyone who presents to me from now on who complains of any kind of widespread migratory skin sensation, whether it is prickling, burning, painful, itchy, or whatever other descriptor they come up with, I'm going to think about mast cell activation syndrome. The clinical test for this, obviously we all know about allergic shiners, but another very useful test is something called dermatographism. This only works when the person is in the middle of a flare. They'll be normal between flares, and the symptoms come and go. By now you'll understand that stress is a factor in determining whether or not those mast cells cross their threshold to degranulate, but also diet, other environmental influences. Even if you swallow a bunch of pollen while you're on your run and you don't necessarily get hay fever because you're taking an antihistamine, but you may get the skin symptoms because you've only blocked half of the histamine receptors in the skin. That's where dermatographism comes in. If I take my fingernail and draw a line across someone's skin, the back is a good place to do this, and just wait a moment. The first thing I'll see, if they have dermatographism, is reddening, usually within 30 seconds. If I keep watching, somewhere between 60 and 90 seconds, I'll start to notice a slight blanching on either side of the red streak. That is actually capillary leakage, causing the skin to puff up just a little bit. The capillary leakage is generated by the histamine and by the platelet activating factor that I've just released from mast cells in the skin. By the way, platelet activating factor is another long-lasting itch signal to the body. It can be difficult to validate the diagnosis. Tryptase doesn't work because there are so many undiagnosed cases of this that you'll be unlikely to have a high enough level to be diagnosed. Remember, undiagnosed people are part of the quote-unquote normal cohort that laboratories use to determine their reference range. But in another of the many ways that urine is our friend in functional medicine, there are a few urine tests that can be extremely helpful in making the diagnosis. Now, the urine is best collected over 24 hours, which is a pain, 
and then kept cold on its way to the laboratory for this test to be truly accurate. What we're looking for is methylhistamine in the urine. This is a breakdown product of histamine, and there's a certain amount of normal histamine release in a person, but if the level is high over 24 hours, that's a very strong and accurate marker. Another one is prostaglandin D2, an extremely long compound, unbelievably long. I'm going to read it to you just for laughs. It's called 23-BPG equals 2-D hyphen dinor hyphen 11 beta hyphen PGF uh, subscript alpha 2. (laughs) Ah, science. Oh, by the way, we've been hearing a lot about an entity called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome lately in connection with COVID-19 because rates have skyrocketed in that cohort of the population. Do you remember I mentioned that COVID-19 is directly, the spike protein is directly sensed by the mastocytes? Well, I wonder if the vasoactive compounds causing increased vascular permeability and the uh, whole witch's brew of chemicals that are being released here could account for this dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system and perpetuate it. Maybe we should be looking for mast cell therapies, and maybe we should be considering some of the functional medicine dietary approaches for people with this type of activation syndrome. People who have a particular variant of one of the cytochromes that are used to break down toxins, 2C19, may be at increased risk for histamine intolerance from foods. And what foods are we talking about? Well, avocados, cheese, nectarines, sardines, spinach, tomatoes, tuna, and many spices. Darn, hard to stay away from all of those, but maybe a trial of reducing those in your diet at a point when you're having a flare might make sense. Mast cells actually get into the amygdala, where they're associated with increased manifestations of anxiety. I think I already mentioned that. They also get into the meninges, and some researchers think that there is a migraine connection with mast cells and migraines. I'm looking at a slide right now that shows a mast cell in the center and then lists of the chemicals that are released with a set of symptoms, and I find it really fascinating. The neurologic symptoms can be decreased concentration in memory, in other words, brain fog, insomnia, migraines, anxiety, and depression. The systemic symptoms can be fatigue, generalized malaise, weight loss. The cutaneous can be flushing, itching, hives, and swelling. The musculoskeletal aches, bone pain, and uh, osteopenia, bone loss. The digestive symptoms, abdominal cramps, esophageal reflux, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea. In fact, there's an entire entity recently acknowledged by gastroenterologists called eosinophilic esophagitis, which is idiopathic, of course, except it's not. It's probably food sensitivity and mast cell hyperactivity local to the uh, esophagus, leading to the increase in eosinophils, which are the long-term allergic and parasitic reactive cells. Cardiovascular, hypotension, 
near fainting or fainting, lightheadedness, and rapid heartbeat. And of course, the respiratory ones, which I won't bother to talk about because I think those are the ones that everyone is familiar with, including your doctor. Here a mast, there a mast, everywhere a mast cell. Mast cells are beginning to be implicated in fibromyalgia, electromagnetic hypersensitivity, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which would be post-Lyme or the yuppie flu from EBV, interstitial cystitis, a bladder pain syndrome. That one is particularly interesting to me because I see so many people with it and have so little to offer them. Multiple chemical sensitivity syndrome, chronic fatigue, neurofibromatosis, post-Lyme syndrome, sick building syndrome, toxic mold syndrome, and last but not least, vitiligo. Wow. Mast cells lower the blood-brain barrier, increasing permeability, and thus subjecting the brain to exposure to higher levels of toxins. This can dysregulate your, your emotions, your homeostasis, your temperature regulation, all of the things at the base of the brain that are the first point of entry when that blood-brain barrier is disrupted. It's all right there in the midbrain. You've got your memory, your coordination, your sense of reward, your sensation, and your emotions, all right in the path of disruption. Just 30 minutes of restraint stress in a rat is enough to measurably lower the blood-brain barrier and increase the permeability of the brain. After listening to this presentation, I feel the evidence is pretty strong that mast cells play a role both in the initiation and the perpetuation of long COVID. But what's a patient to do? Well, there are a number of agents which look to be very effective in the management of mastocytosis. It stands to reason that they would also be effective in mitigating some of the symptoms of long COVID. Probably the best antihistamine is a drug called rupotidine, according to our lecturer, Dr. Theoharides. I did check, and this agent is available in both Canada and the European Union. In terms of plants, we have luteolin leaf. It is a derivative of peppermint leaf. We also have Kercetin, which is found in apple skins and onion skins, among other places, and is a very good mast cell stabilizer. I generally recommend kercetin in doses of 800 to 2,000 milligrams a day during allergy season, and my patients find it quite effective. I really couldn't find a dose for oral luteolin. It's quite poorly bioavailable. Many studies in animals using very high doses were pretty remarkable in terms of the anti-inflammatory effect, particularly its ability to modulate the activity of microglia, which are the immune cells of the brain associated with Alzheimer's disease as well as other types of brain inflammation. However, oral doses in humans would need to be in the thousands of milligrams and it's poorly tolerated at that dose. It does, however, 
work nicely topically. There are a couple of anti-itch lotions, Gentle Derm being the one that I found most easily. And also it raises the issue that maybe just using menthol derivatives, maybe even Old Vicks. I mean, it's supposed to be good for everything. I think next time I get a mosquito bite, I'm going to try some Vicks and see if it calms down all that mast cell activity. It's coming. I heard them buzzing around my head this morning in the garden. But maybe while we're on the subject of therapeutics, let's think back to one of the core triggers for mast cells, and that's stress. I think we all need to meditate, especially people like myself with a allergic background. I think we need to avoid alcohol and those high histamine foods for a couple of weeks and see if that helps our symptoms. If you get hives or diarrhea with heat or stress, that's almost completely diagnostic. When you're in the middle of a flare, try that dermatographism test. And if it's positive, then you might want to come and see a functional medicine doctor and get tested for your total IgG, your alpha-gal, which is something your intestines uh, produce, antibody against a, a muscle protein, which is unfortunately present in our own muscles. So there you go off in the loop again. Antibody against gluten, antibodies against grasses, pollen, uh, get the IgE for that one. And if all of those are negative, stay away from everything allergenic for about three days and get your IgG4 tested and that 24-hour urine. How do you stay away from everything aside from fasting for three days? Chicken and rice or lamb and rice. And I know it's boring, but most of us have been on crazier diets than that. Anyway, if the symptoms are primarily gastrointestinal, you may want to try taking high levels of diamine oxidase. This is a compound that acts exclusively in the gut to break down histamine. So you might be successful with that. Well, I hope that this has intrigued you and informed you and given you food for thought. Almost 20 years ago, a rather remarkable and somewhat counterintuitive study was published by Dr. Dean Ornish and his colleagues at the University of California, San Francisco. It was a study that suggested that people who had prostate cancer could actually affect the progression of the disease by lifestyle change. The initial study was a small pilot trial of men with prostate cancer who elected to follow a strict and supported diet and lifestyle program. The results showed a reduction in the PSA and improved prognosis of their prostate cancer. About a year later, they published another study showing that the same thing, pretty much, lifestyle and dietary intervention improved the quality of life of men being managed with active surveillance of prostate cancer. They kept that study going, and in 2008, the team did prostate biopsies and looked at the genetic expression of the tumor in men with low-risk prostate cancer before and after initiation of the intensive nutrition and lifestyle program. This is a three-year duration, about, and they were able to show substantial differences in what was going on in the DNA. In other words, what messenger RNA was being made by the cancer cells. And all of these pointed in the direction of improved 
immune function and improved cellular metabolism. In other words, the cancer cells were becoming less like cancer cells and more like prostate cells. They were able to show that in men with early stage prostate cancer who did these lifestyle changes, they were able to avoid progression of their cancer and the need to go on and have surgical or or other interventions for treatment. Another biopsy study done in 2013 showed that men with the biopsy-proven low-risk prostate cancer who had participated in previous studies had long-term improvements in both their telomerase activity and the telomere length of their immune cells. In other words, their aging had reversed a little bit, not just in their prostate cancer, but in their body overall. So let's take a few minutes to talk about the possible ways that lifestyle could affect cancer and some of the mechanisms for that. It's important, first of all, to emphasize that prostate cancer is driven by androgens, male hormones, especially testosterone. And this explains why this condition is treated with androgen deprivation therapies, including castration or drugs that turn off the gonadotropin-releasing hormone in the brain and therefore prevent the testes from being stimulated in the first place. Diet has an important impact on testosterone. Lots of studies show that prostate function, including prostate hypertrophy, can be linked to certain dietary practices. Adherence to a Mediterranean diet, for example, has been associated with a reduction in overall prostate cancer risk and a reduction in prostate androgens, that is to say, a subset of male hormones that is specifically stimulatory to the prostate. We think this is because of the balance of protein, carbohydrate, and fat, especially low-saturated fatty acids and higher mono- and polyunsaturated fatty acids, and certain phytonutrients. Omega-3 fatty acids like EPA and DHA have been shown to improve immune resistance to prostate cancer in animal studies, and derivatives of EPA and DHA have been shown to inhibit directly cancer cell proliferation. Certain phytonutrients have been shown to be associated with a reduction in prostate cancer incidence, such as beta-cytosterol, which is found in beans and oats, lycopene, a red carotenoid found in tomatoes and other red vegetables, and a compound called oluropean, which is in virgin olive oil. It's known that the beta-cytosterol and the lycopene influence the testosterone dynamics and they impact cellular signaling within the immune and the endocrine systems. Many studies show that using these nutraceuticals can have a positive impact on preventing both benign prostatic hypertrophy and prostate cancer. But just as everything else, there's probably also a profound indirect effect of diet on the microbiome that's influencing prostate cancer. A recent study I shared with you some weeks ago showed that in an animal model of prostate cancer, using transplanted fecal material from the castration-resistant mice who were still responding to hormone deprivation therapy to 
mice who had lost their ability to respond restored the response pattern. In other words, something was going on at the level of the bacteria. Further study there showed that bacteria were making testosterone and testosterone-like compounds in the gut and that this was the source of the resistance to hormone or androgen deprivation therapy. In other words, the gut started turning into a testicle and making its own androgens because the microbiome shifted its production of those compounds to maintain the microbiome where it had been, going back to the good old days of that particular microclimate. And testosterone was a part of it, so let's make our own since the body's not supplying it anymore. Well, great for the microbiome, but not so great for the guy with the prostate cancer who's the host of that microbiome. Now, when I thought about that for a moment, it seemed to me weird that testosterone would have such a big influence on the microbiome because blood levels of testosterone are so low. It didn't seem like enough would be getting into the microbiome to you know, become a necessary contributor to a particular microbiome uh, homeostasis setup. But in fact, I wasn't remembering about the bile. See, testosterone is excreted in the bile. And so the concentration of androgens in the intestine is about 70 times higher than that in the bloodstream. At that point, you can imagine that the particular mix of bacteria in the microbiome, in a given microbiome that has available testosterone coming in through that bile, would make use of the testosterone to maintain itself, either as a fuel or for some other purpose. And uh, should the supply from the gallbladder be interrupted, if possible, the microbiota would start making testosterone themselves in order to maintain the proper environmental mix to perpetuate their happy little microclimate. Crazy, huh? Well, it turns out crazy but true. Well, let's follow that thread for just a second. What's the logical conclusion? If testosterone's coming out in the bile and has such an influence on the microbiome that the microbiome seeks to maintain its presence when it's taken away, well, doesn't that imply that the same thing would be true for females? After all, in females, estrogen is being dropped into the bile at levels that are substantially higher than the levels of testosterone on the average. In one mouse study establishing that, in fact, this sort of thing is going on, they took gut bacteria from adult male mice and they transplanted them into immature females. And that caused the immature females to develop a more male-type microbiome. And lo and behold, they got elevated testosterone and it messed up their immune system. So the composition of the intestinal microbiome is influential in sex hormone levels, and it also is regulatory in some way. We need to, oh my God, not another level deeper, right? We shouldn't be studying the microbiome. We should be studying the microgenderome because it's quite possible that we need male and female profiles in our research. And if we mix males and females, we may be introducing confounds into our research. Oh no, please don't tell me that. 
we have so much confounded research because most research is done on male animals, and that includes humans. It's so very hard to know whether you can apply things to females when the work is all done on males, and here's just another example of it. But wait, there's more. So we've already talked about this. Sex hormones that are produced endogenously in the ovaries or the testes are transformed in the liver. They go into the bloodstream. They go into the liver. There, the liver conjugates them with other compounds and excretes them into the bile. Basically, it turns them from a lipid-soluble compound that can get into cells directly to a water-soluble compound that can't get into cells and can be contained in a bag like a gallbladder or a bladder and stay there and not soak through and get back into the bloodstream. That's what conjugation does. Well, then they're delivered into the intestinal contents in the bile. And then, depending upon the intestinal microbiome, these conjugated sex hormones can be deconjugated. In other words, that molecular bond that's keeping it water-soluble can be cut by specific microorganisms, and that yields active sex hormones that can be reabsorbed into the blood or biotransformed into different steroid molecules because, hey, those little bacteria are highly creative. And let's not even get started on the fungi. The number of enzymes that break down this conjugation is pretty amazing. The Microbiome Project GI database has found at least 112 novel versions of glucuronidase, the enzyme that breaks up the conjugation in the human microbiome. And presumably, many of these are preparing the sex hormone to be utilized in some fashion by those microbiome organisms. Why else would they do that? Well, maybe they just want to eat the chemical bond, but something tells me that there's even more to this and that we've got another layer or two before we've really peeled this onion. So basically, if you give a drug that prevents at androgens from being made in the testes of an animal, the microbiome will compensate by making its own testosterone, capable of converting androgen precursors, types of you know cholesterol molecules, into active androgens right there within the microbiome without any help from the testes or the ovaries. This is the source of the castration-resistance prostate cancer problem So given that, as always, there's more research to be done, what are the clinical take-homes for men, particularly those with either a family history of prostate cancer or perhaps dysplastic findings, not quite cancer, in other words, on a prostate biopsy? Well, probably the best advice for starters is a minimally processed plant food-based diet that's high in fiber, vitamins and minerals, and includes diverse sources of phytonutrients. That would mean lots of different fruits and vegetables, a rainbow of red, blues, purples, yellows, and oranges, because that's the Mediterranean diet. High in fish and fish oil, low in saturated fat, and probably really low in dairy. There's some particular properties about dairy as a growth hormone that make me very nervous about it in people with an increased risk of prostate cancer. There's also a really interesting 2014 study that I want to mention to you. This was looking at walnuts on prostate-specific 
on PSA levels. And one of the principal phytonutrients in walnuts is ellagic acid, E-L-L-A-G-I-C. And it's metabolized by specific members of the intestinal microbiome into two compounds, urolithin A and urolithin B. In cell studies, these metabolites were found to downregulate the messenger RNA and protein levels of both prostate-specific antigen and the androgen receptor in a prostate cell line. Urolithins inhibit androgen receptor-mediated PSA expression at the transcriptional level. In other words, they block the production of PSA, and they induce apoptosis, cell death, in prostate cancer cells. So the breakdown products of, by a healthy microbiome of walnuts actually rep- suppress the expression of the androgen receptor in the prostate itself, making the prostate less vulnerable to being hyped up and overstimulated by testosterone. And you can measure that by seeing a downregulation in PSA levels. And in cell culture, we can see that the cancer cells are literally induced to die by these non-toxic compounds. So a diet rich in walnuts, probably not a bad idea, but you're going to need a healthy microbiome in order to get those walnuts turned into urolithin to protect your prostate. Now, I've gone wandering down the microbiome rabbit hole again, but I want to circle back to Dr. Dean Ornish's original work because there were two other factors besides diet that were really important there. And one of them was regular exercise. Keeping that fat to muscle ratio in a healthy range is extremely important to lowering your cancer risk. Staying away from diabetes, keeping your insulin levels low, we know that that's pro-inflammatory. And inflammation, well, that's the spark that sets the fire if there's tinder lying around. And it's a complex and multi-layered process. We want to hit it in all the directions we can. So regular exercise, yes. Maintaining a healthy body weight, yes. And very much last but not least, stress reduction. That was a big part of the study. Meditation, mindfulness, reducing anger. Because all of those things, all of those hyped up sympathetic nervous system activities suppress the activity of the immune system causing the immune system not to be alert for those first cancer cells. Stress kills, and not just through your heart, but also by raising your cancer risk. So hard hard as it is for me to slow down and relax, I'm really making a concerted effort this year to stop and meditate and breathe and make sure that I have moments of gratitude and that I get myself into that lovely post-massage rest and digest modality at least once a day. And I strongly urge you to do the same. It's an interesting thing about uh, insurance, particularly health insurance. It's the only product you buy and never use, or at least may not use for years after you've made the purchase. This is where the most people like their health plan Thing comes from because much of the time people haven't had to use their health plan except maybe to show up and get a vaccination or a health maintenance visit. They haven't had to struggle to get uh, an expensive drug or a procedure that they need, which the health 
plan wants to force them to go through a series of intermediate steps. In other words, well, we're going to let this therapy fail before we operate on you. Now, sometimes that's legitimate medical judgment, but most of the time, when the insurance company is the one calling the shots, it's actually a delaying tactic. So the idea here is that you really don't know if your insurance is any good until you put it to the test. And what has been happening in the last few years is that more and more people have been signing up for Medicare Advantage plans without actually realizing how many of the advantages of Medicare they're giving up by selecting a Medicare Advantage plan. Medicare Advantage is offered by various private insurance companies. They collect a lump sum payment once a year for all of your Medicare needs. They get to decide what you need, when you need it, who your doctor can be, and what drugs you can get. And they are allowed to put all kinds of procedural barriers in your path. They advertise extra benefits on television. But in truth, those extra benefits don't cost them much. And you get lots of extra hassle when you need something expensive. Think about any major purchase. Let's say you're buying a new desktop computer or a new car. You probably do a little bit of research about the various advantages, and then you'll take a look at what your return policy is, and then maybe even test drive it or test it uh, in the store. And then when you get home, you know right away whether it works or not. Insurance is really the only product in existence you buy, but have no idea if it really works or if it will be there for you until years later when you need it. And then if the company has gone out of business, it's rather too late to do anything about it. Or, in the case of health insurance, if the company imposes restrictions and rules that weren't disclosed or were added to the plan in a obfuscatory epistle that you received by, uh, via mail. Either way, by not disagreeing, you've agreed, right? <laughs> See that all the time in the privacy documentation on whatever app or other product you use on the internet. Anyway, to get back to insurance, there's been a long history of insurance scams uh, in the United States, and particularly in the late 19th and early 20th century, this was a big deal. Uh, a plan would open up, they would sell policies, and there wasn't exactly a way to check them out, no internet back then. So you bought, you maybe bought an insurance policy, a life insurance policy, or a disability insurance policy, for example. And if after a year or two, the company might simply close up shop, take the movie, and disappear. But if nobody died during that plan, or, uh, you know, nobody's house caught on fire, no one would know until they tried to file a claim that the company no longer existed. So if they got one or two claims while they were busy raking in the cash, they just pay those off. That's how a Ponzi scheme works. You pay off the first few people really big, and then more and more join, hoping for the really big payoff, and then poof, suddenly it doesn't work anymore. It's such an easy and lucrative way to commit fraud that many states decided to have an insurance commissioner who would uh, make sure that the insurance companies weren't ripping people off, that they were adequately capitalized, that they had the reserves they said they did, 
and that there weren't any illegal clauses in the things that the people buying the insurance were signing. Most people sign up for Medicare Advantage plans at 65 when they're typically not sick. This is, in fact, who Medicare Advantage is promoted to. And they have no idea that they're signing up for a whole bunch of hassles, hoops, troubles, and gotchas that they might have to get through if they do get sick, have an accident, or otherwise need medical assistance. What they're giving up is they're giving up the right to choose their doctor or to switch doctors if that specialist is one that they don't feel comfortable with. They're giving up the right to have certain drugs without having to actually take other drugs first and have those be certified as failing by a doctor who's also part of their Medicare Advantage plan. None of these things apply when you have straight Medicare. You have a small cash contribution that you have to make for your medical care, but you do have options and you do have choice and you can shop for price and personality, a whole lot of factors that are extremely important when a person is setting up a medical relationship. Medicare Advantage plans often deny needed care. There was a federal report that came out this year. It was uh, talked about extensively in an article in the New York Times. There are tens of millions of denials issued each year by Medicare Advantage plans for authorization and reimbursements. Under audits from the federal government and others, we see widespread and persistent problems related to inappropriate denials of services and payments. This is a quote from the New York Times article. What you really want is real Medicare with the advantages of Medicare and a secondary regulated Medigap policy to cover the 20% Medicare doesn't cover for services. With that, you'll never have to worry. You'll make a monthly payment and you'll be done. Your bills get paid. You can use any doctor that takes Medicare and neither your Medicare nor your Medicap provider will ever try to collect from you or force you to pay for something you thought was covered. I cannot tell you how many patients of mine have gone to GoodRx and purchased their own medications rather than deal with the Medicare Advantage barriers that have been put in their place for something that both I and they feel they need. Pre-authorization for drugs and surgeries is something that can take days to get through, and often after a denial, an appeal, and perhaps a second denial, and then another appeal, it gets authorized anyway, because at that point, the cost of continuing to fight it is greater than the cost of paying for it. And when a patient shows themselves to be that persistent, they're likely to keep wasting your time and personnel money. Medicare Advantage is not Medicare. It's privatized insurance that came about because of a 2003 law designed to privatize Medicare completely. That's still on the conservative agenda, or I should say the corporate puppet politician's agenda. 18% of Medicare Advantage payments were denied despite meeting Medicare coverage rules. That's 1.5 million payments 
for 2019. You wonder why people are burnt out in this system? It's really hard to keep doing these appeals and dancing around what we know are egregious barriers put in place for our patients and ourselves, speaking as a physician, just to hang on to the money a little bit longer. And thanks to that 2003 law, the State Insurance Commissioner of California, or wherever you live, has little to no power to bring these Medicare Advantage companies to to bear or uh, prosecute them or bind them. I'm afraid that Medicare Advantage is an oxymoron, rather like military intelligence or business ethics. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.